Today's reading is from Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, there are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Lola. My name is Amanda. I am one of the pastors here at Mosaic, and um, today we are continuing our series on the ruthless elimination of hurry, and it is a series based off of a book that a pastor wrote on the West Coast by that same title, um, off of a quote from a theologian, Dallas Willard, that says, hurry is the great enemy of spirituality, and you need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life in order to be someone who is spiritually thriving. And today, specifically, we are talking about technology. Okay? And um, before I dive too much into technology and why we need to understand it, if we're going to ruthlessly eliminate hurry, I want to highlight one of the benefits of technology. And one of the great things about technology is that we can now share pictures with each other in an instant. And so I just wanted to pause this morning and celebrate. We have two new babies that are a part of our community. They should come up on the screen here. I'm born to just. Are they not the most precious thing? Jessica and Dace Morris. Uh, On the left is Elise Rose, and on the right is Lily and Claire. Good luck to the new parents to keep that straight. Um, But um, we are so excited, and I just love it when we can celebrate God's goodness and faithfulness in this way as a community. Um, And grandparents are here this morning. Yes, the grandparents are there. Congratulations, grandparents. So that is one of the awesome things about technology, right? We can see our family and friends, but of course, that's not where I'm going today, is it? So Sean Parker, I don't know if you remember that name, of Napster fame and a very early investor in Facebook on that movie, like what was it called, Social Media? He was uh, played by Justin Timberlake. Um, but in an inter- he was a real guy. In an interview with Axios, he gave a candid look at the purposefully addictive nature of social media. And here's what he says. He says, God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? 
And so that means we need to give you some sort of little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content. And that's going to get you more likes and comments. It's a social validation feedback loop, exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because we're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. And the inventors, creators, like me, he says, understood this consciously, and we did it anyway. Welcome to church. Um, Tristan Harris, who was a part of the tech boom in Silicon Valley working with Google, has now been called the closest thing that Silicon Valley has for a conscience. He's calling for ethical standards and technology design because he knows that it is intentionally designed and engineered for distraction and addiction. Studies have been done on our cell phone usage, and with smartphones in particular, the average iPhone user touches their phone 2,617 times a day. And the average smartphone user uses their phone for two and a half hours a day over 76 different sessions. And if you look at millennials who have iPhones, that number goes up to five and a half hours a day on average. They're on their phone. That's a lot, right? <laughs> like you thought you had a family and a job. Nope, just a phone. Um, and before I go on, I recognize that in a room this diverse, uh, we have people in here who barely use technology. You know, Tibor, he will not do online banking for the life of him. You know, he just won't go that way. I get it. There's people who don't use technology in here. And then there's some of you where you are required to use your phone or your computer for every aspect of your job. And so you're like, so am I just going to sit here and hear about how you know, terrible technology is and I can't get away from it? Here's the deal. Whether you use it all the time or not at all, we need to understand if we are trying to be people who embody our faith, as Kevin was talking about, trying to be people who follow Jesus, we need to understand what's happening in our culture. We need to be aware of it. We need to know the good and the pitfalls, especially if you are a part of the older generation, to understand what this younger generation is being raised in so that you can engage with them and lead them well. So don't check out, even if you don't ever use technology. And here's why it's so important, though, for us to understand all of this with technology. It's not just about these big companies that are, you know, billion-dollar companies trying to get our attention. It's what this technological shift is actually doing to us. Harris, the guy with the conscience, he points out that slot machines make more money than the movie industry and the baseball industry combined because, one, they are addictive – they give you that dopamine hit, the sound and the tactile. And two, it's small amounts of money. It's a penny here, a quarter there, a buck here. And so before you know it, all of your money is gone, but that's not how it feels, right? He says the same thing is true of technology. It doesn't seem like a lot. It's just a little bit here, a little bit there. And before you know it, all of your time is gone and you've gone down this black hole of a device. We lose so much time. But more importantly, we are losing our ability to pay attention. Edith Wharton, a century ago, she coined the phrase, the power of sustained attention, as she cautioned against the radio and how it would ruin our capacity to think. The radio! 
The reality is now, with so many more technological advances, so few of us have the power and capacity for sustained attention. I think we shared these stats at the beginning of the new year, but they're so fascinating and shocking, I want to share them again so you get the full picture. Before the rise of the digital revolution, our attention span was about 12 seconds, okay? which is not great in my opinion, but that's where it was. Okay, So beginning of 2000, about 12 seconds. After 2000, it has gone down to 8 seconds. After 2007, sorry, with the introduction of the smartphone, down to 8 seconds. And this is the fascinating part. Goldfish have an attention span of nine seconds. <laughs> We're losing to the goldfish, okay? It doesn't just happen, and there has to be a cause for this. I actually, as I was preparing this sermon on Thursday, and I'm, I'm sitting on my computer, of course, because I have to type things, and I open up Spotify to listen to and find focus music. You know, they have playlists that will help you focus. But of course, the way they've designed Spotify is I have my friends' feeds over here of what my friends are listening to. So I click on one of my friends' feeds, and I start scrolling through what it is they're listening to, and I come across Ace of Bass. Does anyone remember Ace of Bass? Oh, that she wants it. No, okay. So Ace of Base, right, turns out, so I click on that and I discover that Ace of Base has still been releasing records, the latest one in 2015, and have like 3 million Spotify listeners a month, which was absolutely fascinating. But this is the problem with social media and the apps, is it takes us from focus music to my middle school years. Um, and the reality is I am tempted to say, just forget it. Okay, let's just throw everything out. Let's just disconnect and go off of the grid. But idealism isn't helpful. It's not realistic. One, what in the world would any of us do without maps anymore? I mean, that has been a game changer. Um, but two, we can't turn the clock back. And so we have to be re realistic and honest about what's happening in our culture and then what it's doing to us. And the dropping capacity of attention is a giant problem. On a macro scale, it is a problem because the complexity of our globalizing world requires sustained attention. When we're unable to hold sustained attention, and we talked about this last week, we're unable to develop the type of empathy that is required and is needed to engage in the world in a peaceful, helpful, constructive, kingdom-like way. When we don't have empathy, we are subject to knee-jerk reactions and snap judgments, and we end up mirroring the political mess that we see happening all around us. So there's no ability to sit with someone and be engaged with them, but that's what our world needs on a macro level. And on a micro level, the dropping capacity for attention is more important because it really is a threat to our own soul. Our spiritual maturity, which we're defining as our capacity to give and receive love in relationship with God and other people, it's, a, it's dependent on our ability to pay attention. We can't have a spiritual life if we cannot pay attention. So what do we do? First few weeks of the new year, we talked about a rule of life, developing a way of operating in your life that helps us live in alignment with our deepest desires. And so this entire series is aimed at continuing to develop that rule of life, to really flesh it out in these different areas, to intentionally live instead of just letting life happen to you.
But if you come up with a rule of life, and it's great, but it, it doesn't include your relationship to technology, the odds are that your phone alone, setting aside TV and computer, will sabotage your plan. If we have a rule of life, a way that we intentionally want to go throughout life, but if we do not ruthlessly eliminate digital distraction, most likely our, our plan will fail. And so that's where we're at today. And now there is unfortunately no command in the New Testament that says turn your smartphone into a dumb phone or silence all distractions and notifications. It doesn't, it doesn't talk about it, right? So I can't read that into the script. But the writers of the Bible do have a lot to say about attention and the key role that it plays in our spiritual formation. So we're looking at what David writes in Psalm 16. And if you have a Bible, I always encourage you to bring it with you. Look at it. If it happens to be on your phone, there's no judgment, okay? You can go ahead and use your phone for your Bible. Just, you know, put it in do not disturb mode. Um, but here's where it says, and this poem is a miktam, which some scholars say it's a poem actually used for teaching. So there's something in here we can learn about how it's constructed. He says, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. David is talking about the need to take refuge in God. He's writing in a time of chaos. His story is turbulent. There are wars, political unrest. There are times he's running for his life. He has a deep need to take refuge in God. And I believe the same is true of our time. We live in chaotic times. From coronavirus to impeachment trials, it doesn't ever seem to let up. So how is it that we can take refuge in God and find our joy and peace and our relationship with him? How can we take refuge in God? And David goes on to really say one thing that he won't do and one thing that he will do. First, what he will not do. In verse 3, he says, I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. The people who I want to model my life after, the holy ones, the people who are trying to follow God, right? Verse 4, those who run after other gods, the opposite, will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods, which means make a sacrifice, which was the custom of the day, or take up their names on my lips. David is saying, I will not go after the gods of the age. This is what I will not do. He realizes that those who do suffer more and more. And an important distinction here, he doesn't say that they suffer at the hand of his God, right? He instead says that they're going to suffer at the hands of the gods that they worship. You worship something. We all worship something. There's something that drives us that we place our value on. And if it's not a creator, it's going to be something created, something from the world, something we would call an idol. And anything that we worship that is created will eventually eat us alive. We worship money, power, sex, beauty. When we focus on and submit to, sacrifice blood to our idols, they end up destroying us. Because we will never be rich enough, never be powerful enough, young enough, strong enough. So you continue to make sacrifices to these gods and it's never enough. 
You might hear that and think, okay, that sounds a little weird, sacrificing to the gods, because our idols have been despiritualized, right? They're presented not as a spiritual thing, but as a secular thing. They're more subtle, and it's easy to forget that if you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, we are meant to be a counterculture. We're not just Americans with Jesus on the side, or wherever you're from with Jesus on the side. We can get numb and settle in and forget that we are a counterculture. It's not that we're better or think that we're better. We live in a different way. We do money differently. We don't hoard our resources. We give them away liberally. Power is done differently. We're not trying to reach maximum power for ourselves, but instead lift other people up. We do sexuality differently. We do identity differently. We don't do relationships in the same way as the city. We don't look at people as disposable like Tinder does, right? We are a counterculture. And so my question for you this morning is, as you think about what it is that is deeper in you, that is driving you, tempting you to worship the gods of this age, what is it that's at the deeper level that's having you focus on the things of this world? The poet says, I will not give my time and resources to the idols. I won't give my attention to the things of this world, which will in the end cause me to suffer more and more. And technology is essentially an IV drip of everything that is worldly. And so, as Neil Postman says, technology must never be accepted as the natural order of things. We don't just accept it as this is okay, this is what everything is happening, this is what I gotta do. My kid is now this old, I better get him a smartphone and just go with it. Instead, consider the way that the Amish handle technology. They're selective and critical about what type of technology comes into their community. They watch it for a while. We're all the guinea pigs. They watch us and see how it goes. They have a community-wide conversation to see, will this actually be beneficial for our life together and our life before God? And there are things that they've ruled against. I probably wouldn't rule against all of those things, but yet they're not just saying, this is the natural order. We have to be selective and recognize that if we are not careful, we will unintentionally be setting ourselves up to focus our attention on the gods of the world through the technology that we employ. All out of this deeper drive and desire to feel loved, to successful, be provided for, This is what David says he will not do. But now what he will do. Verse 5, he says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. He's living in an agrarian culture where the land, physical land matters. And he's saying, even though life is crazy around me, he has a need to take refuge, right? I I can look and say, no, I... I have a good life. The God, the God has given me a good life around me. He goes on to say, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, the deep inner part of his soul, my heart instructs me. I will keep my eyes always on the Lord with him at my right hand. I will not be shaken. 
praises the Lord and keeps his eyes always on the Lord. How do we do this? Setting the Lord always before us, keeping him always before us. He'll do all that he can to keep his mind always on God and the intention of his heart always before him because this is what allows him to live in line with his deepest desires. Because attention is a precursor to adoration. When we slow down long enough to pay attention, it often leads to an awareness and we begin to realize how good God actually is. We begin to understand and recognize his compassion in our lives. Awareness often leads to adoration. Time and attention are the two most powerful ways that we can express our love to someone else, to be with you, present with you, experience that emotional empathy with someone else. And time given over to attention on God is how we receive God's love coming toward us. And it's also how we give love back to God. It was interesting, as I was preparing this and looking at this passage, I had a Bible that I've had for quite a few years, like a physical old school Bible, you know. And um, I write in it. And so I had written on Psalm 16 a date. It said April 2012, and the words, in the waiting, listed there. And then at the end of the passage, I had underlined some of, some of the lines, and in all caps said, God is so good. And if you knew what was happening in my life in April 2012, it was chaos. I was, my husband and I were both, we had been working in Detroit at this large church. We didn't know what was going to happen next. We both were transitioning out of our jobs. We had just received two additional kids into our home where the adoption was not finalized. And I was like four years old and didn't know what I was doing. We had no idea what was going on. And yet, as I... I was able to look at that and go, oh my gosh. I was able to recognize God's goodness and have adoration for him because I was intentionally taking time to keep him in front of me and to turn my attention and my gaze on him. I could find a confidence in his goodness. The more that we do that, the more that we index our heart towards a love of God. Attention is the precursor of adoration, and it is also the portal to our spiritual formation. We become like what we pay attention to. The mind is a portal to our soul. What we fill our mind with will shape the trajectory of our character. If we are giving our attention to God and his love and his plans for the world, we are shaped like him. We become like him. When we see his radical generosity, we become people of generosity. If we give our attention to the 24-hour news cycle of outrage and anxiety and slander and shame and celebrity gossip. Are we surprised? And that's what we become. We become what we give our attention to for better or for worse. I care deeply about this group of people here and who you are and who you are becoming. If attention is the doorway to our soul and what we let in through that door will determine who we become. And we live in a time where there are massive corporations, billion dollar corporations fighting for your attention. We have to take it seriously. We have to actually take it seriously. 
If you are a follower of Jesus in here, you have to take it seriously to live sober and alert and not just keep going with it. So, again, they'll continue this conversation downstairs at one o'clock with some more practical things. But if you can't make it, I'm going to give you a few things to consider, some potential practicalities. One, develop a digital rule of life. Say, what is it that I want my life to be? What, are, what is it that I want my attention to be focused on? Share it with someone. Some of you might need to take a digital detox. They're calling it a thing now, where you take 30 days and you completely disconnect from everything and slowly reintroduce technology back into your life. Consider a digital Sabbath, a day where... You're not on any sort of technology. I know some of you, I I say that, and immediately your blood pressure just rises, right? And there's freedom and flexibility in this, right? Limiting your use. One of the things I've been considering, and so just be prepared, it may enter into our church worship, is where we have a time every week where collectively we say, we're going to not just silence our phones, but turn them off and declare that it's okay if we're unreachable for 45 minutes. The world is going to stop turning. God still sits on the throne. Right? It's coming. We're doing it. Um, Parent your phone. If you have small kids, they should be going to bed before you and getting up after you. Your phone should go to bed before you. Give it a bedtime and put it to sleep in another room. I'm going to give you real quickly an example of a digital rule of life that... um, it's just some guy. He's a Christian, but um, he's not a pastor or anything. This is, this is what he said. This is what he wanted for his family. One, minimal apps that are more about utility than inter- entertainment. His phone is always on do not disturb with n- no noise for notifications so that instead of his phone reaching for him, he reaches for it. No unnecessary phone usage in front of his kids. No phone at his kids' sporting events or recitals or play practices or whatever plays, not to practice. I guess you wouldn't go there with your phone. Continually challenging himself to leave his phone away. If he's going to go out somewhere, leave it at home. No phone at the dinner table or the breakfast table or the lunch table. That your phone sleeps in a different room, which means you might have to buy an analog alarm clock. The TV is minimal. And when it is on, it's only high-quality entertainment, things that are, are worthy of our attention and not just mindless trash. The apps that are on uh, tablets are limited as well to educational. There are time limits. One screen at a time, so no, no scrolling while the TV is on. I'm guilty of that one. Screen time is not a reward for kids. I encourage you as well, there's a book by Andy Crouch called The TechWise Family. It's good for parents, singles, anybody. Giving you a framework, my son is shaking his head. No, don't read it, because yeah, we did a whole lot of stuff with it. But for you to really go, is this, how is it that I want to live? It's not just the natural order. Reality is that technology, especially more and more, is falling into the area of compulsion, if not full-on addiction. And addiction, the root causes of addiction, are often our inability to face the pain of reality. We're bent to escape the pain of reality. So we'll go to anything. It's true of substances, absolutely. But it's also true of things that are more socially acceptable, like shopping and our devices. 
We attempt to escape the pain instead of facing it. But if we're not present to the pain of reality, we're also not present to the joys of reality. Being able to say, even in the midst of the chaos, my life before God is good and rich. The poet goes on to say, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Even in the midst of chaos, we can live lives that are blessed. Even if they don't look like it from the outside perspective, because we can recognize that we're living in God's kingdom and can face the pain of unmet desires, unmet dreams, and trust that God will not abandon us to the realm of the dead. And so as we wrap up our service today, we're going to just take a minute and focus our hearts and our attention on what I think is one of the most beautiful things that we can focus on, and that's Christ crucified, summing up the extent of the love that our Father has for us, the full extent of what he would go to to express his love for us. And so those who are administering communion can come up and get things ready for us. The band can come on up. But take a deep breath. I'm going to read for you a bit of the story of the crucifixion. I'm going to read it to you from from Matthew 27. But this uh, this is from the message translation, message paraphrase. Just to give you some fresh words to maybe hear it a little bit differently. And as you prepare your heart to come and receive, listen to these words. Let them soak in. Put your full attention on what God has done for you. It says, The soldiers assigned to the governor took Jesus into the governor's palace and got the entire brigade together for some fun. They stripped him and dressed him in a red toga. They plaited a crown from branches of a thorn bush and set it on his head. They put a stick in his right hand for a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mocking reverence. Bravo, king of the Jews, they said, bravo. And they spit on him and hit him on the head with a stick. When they'd had their fun, they took off the toga, put his own clothes back on him, and they proceeded out to the crucifixion. Along the way, they came on a man from Cyrene named Simon and made him carry Jesus' cross. Arriving at Golgotha, the place they called the Skull Hill, they offered him a mild painkiller. When he tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. After they had finished nailing him to the cross and were waiting for him to die, they whiled away the time by throwing dice for his clothes. Above his head, they had posted the criminal charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Along with him, they also crucified two criminals, one to his right, the other to his left. People passing along the road jeered, shaking their heads in mock lament. You bragged that you could tear down the temple and then rebuild it in three days. So show us your stuff. Save yourself. If you're really God's son, come down from that cross. High priests, along with the other religion scholars and leaders, were right there mixing it up with the rest of them, having a great time poking fun at him. He saved others. He can't save himself. King of Israel, is he? Then get get down from that cross. We'll all become believers then. He was so sure of God. Well, let him rescue his son now if he wants him. He did claim to be God's son, didn't he? 
Even the two criminals crucified next to him joined in the mockery. From noon to three, the whole earth was dark. And around mid-afternoon, Jesus groaned out of the depths, crying loudly, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some bystanders who heard him said, He's calling for Elijah. One of them ran and got a sponge soaked in sour wine and lifted it on a stick so he could drink. And the others joked, Don't be in such a hurry. Let's see if Elijah come and saves him. But Jesus, again, crying out loudly, breathed his last. At that moment, the temple curtain was ripped into top to bottom. There was an earthquake and rocks were split in pieces. Tombs were opened up and bodies of believers asleep in their graves were raised. The captain of the guard and those with him, when they saw the earthquake and everything else that was happening, were scared to death. And they finally said, this has to be the son of God. And the night before all of this took place, Jesus was with his friends in an upper room enjoying the Passover meal. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. When you get together, take it and remember me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant will be for the forgiveness of sins for many. Take it. Remember me. And he shared it with them. And he invites us to do the same, to come, to take the bread, to take the cup. The way we do it here is we take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. But it's a way of us turning our attention and saying we're going to be formed by the most truthful thing in the universe, that we have a God who loves us, that he would endure that on our behalf. And so if you believe that story, you are so welcome to come and take and remember God's goodness.